You're listening to the Gov Future podcast, highlighting discussions and insights around innovative technology impacting the public sector. Hear from experts working with and inside the government on ways that technology is shaping the future of the public sector. On this episode, we feature a panel discussion from the November 15th, 2023 Gov Future Forum DC event. We'll hear how AI, machine learning, and IoT enhance data analytics capabilities at different government agencies, how they are employing sustainable IT modernization efforts, and issues related to data governance. On the panel were Adderall Roberts, CIO, Defense Logistics Agency, Dr. Gregory Pappas, Associate Director for National Surveillance, FDA, and Stephen Wong, Department of Energy. Stay tuned. All right, well, wonderful. So with that, I will do a quick introduction myself and then we'll pass it over so you guys can have it. I'm Kathleen Walsh. I am an executive director here at GovFuture. I'm so excited to be moderating our panel today. And the topic of our hot topic panel is IT modernization, data, and analytics. So I'd like to have you all start by introducing yourself for about a minute or so to our audience and tell them one fun fact about yourself. We'll start with you, Adara. I don't know about a fun fact. Um, so good morning, Daryl Roberts. I'm the CIO at Defense Logistics Agency. Um, what about my background? Um, Air Force veteran. Um, actually graduated with a business administration degree. Um, so I wasn't born in IT and a developer and all that stuff. So how I ended up here, I don't know. Um, but um, I was buying and sold. Um, served four years in the Air Force, did a couple of years in private industry with CACI um, before becoming a federal civilian. Um, I joined the Senior Executive Service um, in the Department of Defense in 2019. Um, I was what we call a program executive officer. So what that means, I was in charge of all the IT business applications and development um, for DLA and for some DOD level programs. Um, so we have about $2 million worth of um, IT cyber infrastructure at DLA um, supporting the, our, our mission. Uh, what folks don't understand about DLA, one, we're the only combat logistics um, support agency in the country, um, but we also have a huge whole of government. Um, so um, we'll talk COVID. If you think about COVID, um, your PPE that you receive, um, the test kits that you receive in the mail, things of that nature, um, we partner with HHS um, and others to make that happen. Um, the value of DLA is our speed, our, our ability to do volume. We do about 10,000 contracts per day um, at DLA um, at scale where no one touched it, all automated orders um, that occur. Um, but then we also support um, national disasters, things of that nature as well. So we like to say anything that our warfighters need from the boots, the clothing, the food, the munition, Anything that they have that they need to go for deployed, that's the that's provided by DLA. So I'm very excited to talk to you about our journey today. Uh, we're on a digital business transformation journey um, that I'd like to share some insight with you. Uh, and the one fun fact. Um, so I'm from a little town called Speed, North Carolina. Um, you'll miss it. There's a stop sign and then you're in the next town. Um, but um, General Hugh Shelton, former Joint Chiefs of Staff, um, is from that town, um, as well as my father. So it's pretty unique in a town of about 400 people. Um, you've got a four-star, a senior executive, and a command sergeant major, which represent 
the top one percent in the Department of Defense. So, and we actually all know each other. Hi, Greg Pappas. For those of you in the room, you've heard me speak already, but maybe there's a few people online who are tuning in late. So I am uh, the associate associate director director at the Center for Biologics at the Food and Drug Administration. Uh, I'm a physician, and I do. Uh, I call myself an influencer. <laughs> Try to help uh, steer the uh, FDA and other federal government partners. Uh, uh, in directions around what we call the government, particularly at the FDA, real-world evidence, data collected as part of routine clinical care, which has become a very important source of data to manage care, and the hope is to help uh, you reuse that data to uh, manage the enterprise across the, the enterprise healthcare broadly for what uh, there are data needs for many, uh, many uh, uh, partners uh, to improve the quality and efficiency of healthcare more broadly, along with our uh, mandate at the FDA, which is to ensure the safety and efficacy of medical products. Uh, fun fact: uh, I have this this uh, Victorian bulldog that I love. Her name's Chanel. Hamper, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, love of my life. <laughs> Hi, Steve Wong again. Um, I'll do the fun fact first. Uh, I started a nonprofit theater company 13 years ago. Wow. Uh, we got up to about 20,000 people a year, which is pretty cool. And that was not my day job. Okay. <laughs> my day job at the time was uh, handling large CapEx projects. By that, we mean in the billions and tens of billions of dollars. So I actually had a portfolio that was $100 billion at the time. Okay, with ExxonMobil. Um, but that was the day job. The night job was a whole lot more fun, but took up a lot more time. <laughs> so, so anyway, um, well, again, senior program manager with DOE. But again, we said before we do uh, basic research in, in the energy sciences side. But we're not with the Office of Science, surprisingly. <laughs> anyway. Oh, quick background. Um, started out. Uh, oh, yes. Okay. So getting ready to go to college. Uh, I decided to be an electrical engineer, and I'm so proud. I'm going home, and I'm telling everyone, I'm going to be a double E, and not a single person encouraged me. Not my parents, <laughs> not my friend, no one. They said, I thought, you know what, you need to go into patrolling. I'm like, geez, I really don't want to do that. But I'm, if we did, we and we found something that we liked, which was, which was simulation work, which kind of led into, um, if any of you know about the original LISP machines, yes, we used to those uh, as well when we're doing AI stuff. So that's kind of how I started. But most of my time has been on the oil and gas side of stream research. Now it, it includes that, but it includes wind, marine, and renewables as well. All right, wonderful. Well, Daryl, you have the mic, so we'll start with you. So we like to talk a lot about emerging technologies at Gut Future Forum because I think that everybody has a lot to learn. We like to bring the community together. So when it comes to emerging technologies such as AI or machine learning, even IoT, can you let us know how your agency and how, how you specifically are exploring these different emerging technologies to enhance data analytics capabilities? Yeah, um, I think you heard a little bit earlier today from some of my colleagues um, about what they're doing in AI and things of that nature. And I think it's a common theme in government. Uh, we want to get there faster 
than what sometimes the process um, and the funding allows us. Um, but we're playing in AI, we're playing in um, bots, we're playing in predictive analytics, things of that nature. Um, 5G, we have distribution warehouses all over the world. Um, a unique challenge we have that a lot of folks don't have with our warehousing. Our warehouses are in places where, you know, things go boom. Um, and so there's still a need for us to be proactive, right? I think the one thing that has been highlighted to the world in general uh, with what's going on in the Ukraine is the importance of logistics right? and the importance of predictive predictability and logistics. And so we're trying to be more predictive in what we're doing, not reactive. That was the one thing we learned in the last four or five years of, hey, we could have predicted what was going to occur, you know, with COVID, with supply chains and things of that nature. So we're trying to utilize these technologies to buy down our supply chain risk um, moving forward. And that's great to hear because I think um, everybody was impacted, but when it comes to defense, you know, national security, you have to really understand that because that's something that we definitely don't want to be impacted. So Greg, we'll have the next question go to you. Um, you were able to share a little bit in your talk earlier, but maybe can you let us know um, some real world evidence? So can you share with us your study of coordinated registry networks, CRN, as and the most successful model for real world evidence? So maybe can you share with us some real world examples that you've seen of you know, why it's so important? Uh, I first want to, want to say that um, I am not putting all my hope on one one effort. As the point is, one big system in healthcare is just one big data system is just not going to work. Healthcare is too reverse. So we've got a system that's developing around vaccine safety. That's got its own own uh, uh, constraints and needs. Uh, blood products quite distinct, very 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 different. Uh, cardiology is. In terms of the critical data that you need, uh, and the and the questions about quality uh, are very different from orthopedic surgery or primary care. So uh, the systems, uh, the one big approach is just uh, not. Uh, and CRNs, coordinated registry networks, are uh, themselves a, a subset. And I think there are a lot of of opportunities, and we're just at the beginning of developing. Um, these method methods, as they say, they they come up primarily in the quality improvement space. Uh, big issue. Other other federal government, um, other federal agencies, and private sector agencies are are uh, working on the issue of monitoring and improving the quality of healthcare. Um, just to just to, on that point, just a just a little bit of drill down. Uh, the traditional approaches adopted from industry many years ago, Deming and all the, you know, the quality improvement movement uh, applied to healthcare were uh, driven by kind of, again, top-down, one-size-fits-all approaches. That didn't work either. What has been working, and we've seen very dramatic improvements in, I'll give the example, vascular care, um, you know, uh, your, aortic, your aortic valve has a little little bubble on it, it's gonna pop and you're gonna die and you know, and you gotta go in there and you gotta repair that. That's an example. Your your diabetes leg is, uh, the best vessels are blowing out, you need some vessels down there. So uh, vascular surgery, 20 years ago, when I was a young doctor, um, 30 years ago, 
uh, was kind of a mess. And over the period, the 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 Vascular Quality Initiative, which is a very modestly in, invested in initially by the um, AHRQ, um, Agency for Healthcare Quality Research, uh, invested in a quality control, quality improvement mechanism. Uh, and uh, this is a self-sustaining activity that has dramatically improved the quality of care. And uh, it's real simple if you think about how, how healthcare works. Doctors are very competitive. They all, each one, each of your doctors wants to be the best. And in fact, each of them think they're the best until you, until you show them their data compared to their peers. And that's the core function of the, uh, of the registry. And they show that you show them the data and then you tell them, oh, this is the standard that they're using. And this is the procedure that they're using. And oh, um, I mean, it, it actually works. And uh, this same approach is being used across this across the uh, the system uh, across the healthcare system across the healthcare broadly uh, and is showing showing uh, important activity building on top of that so the data is being collected at, at great cost as I said you know we're all for trying to figure out how to decrease that cost and in, in my earlier presentation I said a bit about that but uh, uh, this is a this is a going concern these are uh, activities that Break even. They, you know, they're, they're nonprofits. They make they make enough money to to keep going to invest in themselves. To you know, they're they're uh, in these professional societies, uh, but they're, they're they're sustainable activities, and they've been and, and they become more sustainable sustainable when they take out more uses. For example, evaluating the uh, the products for the FDA. Right. That's yeah, and Stephen, well, the next question for you. I know that your demo earlier was on natural language processing. So maybe can you share with us how the Department of Energy is looking to explore AI, natural language processing, uh, other areas related to AI to help with their mission and to help make data-informed decisions and using that technology to uh, you know, improve outcomes? Uh, I think we talked a little bit about the uh, some of the use cases and the, the positive sense, like I said, with the uh, the kind of this uh, tighter loop in terms of experimentation. Uh, certainly, in terms of uh, data discovery, um, we, we've got a lot. Uh, they're trying to tie it into molecular models to kind of see, like you know, what kind of things can we create? You know, whether it's uh, something that's thinner, faster, smaller, more explosive, whatever. Yeah, but. Uh, so there, because there's that, that element, but but the reality is, uh, we we were looking at we're trying to find weaknesses, and it's not it's, it's, it doesn't have to be NLP. There will always be some new emerging technology, but we have to be at the forefront. We have to be agile, <laughs> not to overuse that word, um, and, and adapt. Like I said, technology is changing every day. So whatever it is, and we have to have some opinion. I don't. You probably haven't read the latest executive order. Uh, Look for a summary about that one. Um, so there, there is unfortunately it's written by committee. It sure seems like it. Um, there's a lot in there. Uh, there's some interesting takeaways, um, and which we have to follow, uh, of course. But um, but at the, at the end of the day, we just have to figure out how do we get our government processes to be able to respond quicker to the changing landscape of technology. It's, it's that simple because it keeps changing faster and faster. Yeah.
Great insights. Daryl, the next question is for you because, you know, we touched upon logistics, right? Which is incredibly important. Probably something you deal with all day, every day. And so how are you looking to industry and other agencies that also have similar issues to learn from them? Um, so we're very reliant on industry. So when I look at my organization, um, we probably got about 2,000 IT professionals spread throughout DLA. But if you look at our contract support, we probably have about 6,000 that support us across the IT spectrum. Um, and to the point you just made in terms of how do we do things better in the government, we're our digital business transformation process is asking the question of why can't we do things like industry? Why can't we process like the Amazons, like the Lowe's and others in the world? So we're moving to more commercial products to say, hey, this is the product. This is how it works out of the box. This is how industry uses it. The only reason you're not going to do it that way is if there's some type of law, policy, or regulation that prevents you from doing it. Um, and so we're being very intentional about that. We're working with our partners in GSA, our NATO partners, and others. Um, we're an SAP shop, so that complicates it, right? Because um, they don't change for anybody, <laughs> right? Um, but we've changed our approach as well, because traditionally as a government, industry views it as you don't have a choice. So whatever we give you, you're going to adapt, you're going to customize it, you're going to pay for it. And so what we've done, we've said, well, we're going to use things out of the box, but we have things, low-code platforms that hey, if we really have to do something that is uniquely government, let's put that process on that low-code platform. Let's keep our data in here and make sure we have the data rights and then do that ourselves, right? And so that's changing the conversation with industry. And we've also brought those industry partners together. So our ERP vendor, our low-code vendor, our bot vendors, our data platform vendors, we bring them in a room and we say, hey, let's talk about what this looks like in the end. How are you going to complement one another within our environment? Um, and then our system integrators within the government, more so than, than the technology owners themselves, your system integrators are vital to what you do because we've customized what industry has put out so much that if you don't own the process, document that process, they pretty much own your, your organization. Um, and so we start holding them accountable, right? If you've been within our organization for five years, 10 years, et cetera, I shouldn't have to explain my requirement to you. You should inherently have that knowledge and be able to deliver with more velocity. And if you can, break tops, right? I think as a government, sometimes we are used to status quo. It's a built-in excuse of, well, you know, the vendor can, the vendor can. We have to be more aggressive in our acquisition posture. And if someone's not delivering, thank you. Who's next? Yeah, that's a great mindset that I don't think everybody adopts. We ran a GovFuture forum last week in Silicon Valley at Stanford when we were out there. And it was a really interesting mix of people, you know, especially being on the West Coast, because when we run our events in D.C., I think that everybody's so used to working with and around government, whether you directly work with the government or you have neighbors that work in the government or relatives that work in the government. But still, once you leave D.C., it's very different. And the government is not a huge employer um, in Silicon Valley as it is here. So you're able to get that unique perspective and really see industry out there differently. Do you want to well, and, and you bring up a great point because what's unique about what we do, and people don't realize this, 
we love small business. Yeah. Right. I mean, we look for that small business. That's where the innovation happens most of the time. Right. And so our R&D department um, and the things that we do, we are really looking to that small business for that innovation. And sometimes it's not always on the technology itself. Sometimes it's in the culture to change management piece because culture will kill any type of technology or strategy you have just like that. We always say it's people, process, and technology. And technology is not your issue. It's not your issue. And so what we've advised small businesses to do, right, flip the paradigm. Right. The government is incentivized to award you. And so don't think you have to go beg the huge companies to, hey, be my partner, be my partner. It's actually the reverse. They should be coming to you as a small business saying, hey, can you partner with me so we can win more? So when we were out in Silicon Valley, we had U.S. Coast Guard, we had DIU Defense Innovation Unit, there's their Palo Alto office, and we had Ensign out there. And there are opportunities. The problem is that industry doesn't always want to or know how to work with the government, especially outside of this area. So what are your agencies, and I'll open this up to all three of you, what are your agencies doing to make it easier to work with small business? And what are you doing to find the small business? So we have about 8,500 small businesses that we work with at DLA. Um, And that's down. About five years ago, it was about 12,000. Um, some of that is the pandemic, of course. Um, you know, we're very unique in the Department of Defense. There's not a huge industrial base for tanks and things of that nature, right? So um, what we're trying to do is figure out how do you incentivize those businesses to continue to operate. I think also we have to help them modernize, right? Additive manufacturing is something that I think small businesses should really look into because for us in the Department of Defense, there's not a, we can't find things for a B2 bomber, right? There's, it's not profitable for folks to do that. And so, but you have to sustain those type of weapon systems. So, you know, who's willing to do that? And it's not profitable, right? If we're not using them, if we're not dropping bombs, at some point, it's not profitable at scale. And so we've had businesses that have literally told us, until you get to a certain order volume, we're not opening our factory, yeah. right? And so part of what we're trying to do is how do we accelerate the availability, the use, the acceptance of added manufacturing 3D printing to the point that it's just like building a car in a factory, right? It, you have car factories all over the place. Um, so we're trying to figure out at scale, how do we incentivize the industry? How do we incentivize the folks building that technology to, make that readily available so it is advantageous. Um, another part, it's just hard to register with the government, right? <laughs> Everyone loves Sam.gov. You know, we own CCR, so if you want to invite me <laughs> later, you can, you can find me about that. Um, but we got to streamline Yes. But we have to make it easier to get in the door, right? There's a lot of effort to just get an opportunity and no result. And so we have to make that initial entry into government, business government procurement, a lot more attractive, a lot more streamlined, so that people are willing to take questions. Yeah. There's all business. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just briefly, there's lots of ways to work with the FDA. Uh, one new uh, vehicle that 
may not be not, uh, known to some of the uh, listeners here is the BAA, the Broad Agency Agreement, which is a very flexible, open uh, 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 process by which you send in your ideas, and then we evaluate the idea. It kind of goes around the set, the the, uh, the the agency, and then if we're interested, we ask you to write a proposal. So it's 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 a way to communicate. So it may not be something that uh, you know about. Uh, we have something called the Small Business, I'll call it Innovation and Research Fund. Yes. Um, but And those things are, they are published on websites. But it's back to the, uh, how do you really do it? It's back to people. You got to get out there to the industry forums, you know, start contacting your friends. You're not trying to play favorites, you're just trying to get the message out there. There's just so much noise, and it's back to the theater experience, okay? <laughs> how do you advertise what you're doing and get it in front of people without being a pest? It, that is a common problem no matter who you are. Okay. And so the same thing. How do I get this message done? If I send you an email, you can like, no, it's just more spam. And, you know, it goes to automatically to junk or something like that. You have to get in front of people. And then again, it really back to people. It's not really about technology. It's not really, it's just been back to people yeah. trying to be open about that. Another thing that we found too, well, I mean, one, what is small business, right? Because small is a relative term. But the language that government speaks is not the language that industry speaks. Acronyms are loved in the government, and it can be quite confusing and complex. And if you don't have a dedicated team that wants to work with the government, then that business is not going to work with the government, and they can choose to not do that. And that can be a big problem because the government gets to miss out on all of that innovation and all of that potential collaboration. And that vendor misses out as well, that company, that they don't get that opportunity. So going over there, it was definitely, you know, I mean, we love all of our forum events, but it definitely was eye-opening to see just how people outside of DC really consider and see working with the government. And even at Stanford, they had a program for undergraduates that could work with the government and maybe grad students too. But then once they left, it was done. So if they don't capture you and get you excited within that, you know, few years that you're there, people go off. They're not here every day. They don't have neighbors that work in the government. Uh, it's not in their face in a regular basis. And so then you miss out on that talent as well. Yeah, we're, we're working. We started a program. I started about two years ago. Um, first work with OSD called taking the thing on to the people, going out to different universities and colleges and say, hey, we're DOD. What do you think about us? Um, but then we took it a step further at DLA and we started signing agreements with them to, hey, we're going to help you with career fairs. We're going to help you understand the department. And what I've asked the presidents also, what do you think about a course in the defense of Like, we really want to have your students come in, do some real-world interning, work on some government problems, come out with the clearance, right? You're going to have to make yourself marketable. Um, so we're trying to take that extra step to say, hey, we want to expose you to what we do. You may not end up working for DLA, but you may work for another federal agency or you may work for a DOD contractor, right? But we're trying to get to the students early in their academic career. So that you know we're not the last resort that is really wonderful to hear yeah that's what they were sharing that they said when because uh you know the government doesn't always have a favorable view uh, especially outside this region and if you get folks in early you expose them to what they can do the opportunities that exist for all different roles 
they found that when students left, they had a much more favorable view and the potential to work for an area of government was a lot higher. So it's really wonderful to hear that. So I'll have one more question, then I'll open it up to the audience because this has been such a wonderful discussion. So IT modernization is a theme, I think, in all of our GovFuture Forum panels because it's hard not to be, right? You know, it's an ongoing process and it needs to continue to evolve and be thought and, and you know, rethought about. So what strategies are your agencies employing to ensure the scalable and sustainable implementation of modernization efforts? particularly in the context of data and analytics, as that is the topic of our panel. So, Stephen, we'll start with you, and we'll work our way down. There are a lot of efforts. <laughs> uh, I'm going to talk about the low-end effort, okay? Because Office of Science, which somebody mentioned before, they get these, oh, you know what, we need to start studying large language models. I need several billion dollars from Congress. That's not me. I'm used to that, but that's not me. On our side, if we're lucky if it's a couple thousand dollars, that's a lot. So we have, and I want to mention this, I come from a .gov, sorry, .com background. I for a short part of my resume, I worked at a .com. Not successful, but that's okay. But the interesting thing about I mean, this back to agility, they'll do things quickly. That's the way we think on our side of the fence. So to, to back to the, uh, especially IT modernization, we want to leverage as much as possible where we can, uh, what industry has to offer. But as we've said before, and yet, as you know, we do have specific requirements, whether they're privacy or data classification, data privacy, you know, those kind of things that we have to deal with. And of course, when you're number one, guess what? You get attacked. So every little thing, it, it's a big deal, right? If it makes it in the news, not a good thing, right? Uh, but we don't have infinite resources. And that's what we have to get people to think is that we have to think differently. We have to think out of the box. The good thing about doing government or even what I say, I think theater work had to do with project execution. It doesn't matter if you have the greatest ideas. If you don't execute, you're nowhere. Definitely true in the government. But the flip side of that is we can't get into this checkbox mentality where were you to have a project with us, fill out this form, which is probably, you know, how many pages long, make sure it has all these things. And if you don't do one little thing, you're out. Okay. And, and there is an element to that. I, I, I get that. But whether it's selecting people, whether it's selecting projects, we 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 started. I think GSA started, and we need to continue that too. Where we need to this retrospective: what projects were successful? What is your metrics for success? Why weren't they successful? Not just did you execute them, you know that that kind of stuff. What makes them successful? And I think what you will find is a lot of those things aren't captured in our normal forms. You know, when you hire someone. There's a reason you have this one-year period when you're evaluating them, because you're valuing them on the job, not what they said in their resume or the things that they did in the past, but how they work with you as a team. And some of that can only be done right there, then and there. But we need better ways to be able to do those assessments. Yeah, so we, I, I talked about BBX earlier. We started in, in 2019, I started as an IT monetization project, but we purposely change it to being digital business transformation because the purpose of any IT modernization is for some type of operational or business outcome. Um, so we wanted to make sure that the business was involved front and center. I didn't want it to be a CIO shop effort. All the IT folks go in, we put something out there, you tell me how you hate it, and then I have to go fix it, right? We said, hey, let's, let's start with the business and what is it that you're hoping to achieve, right? Based upon us doing this transformation. Are we going to be more efficient? 
Are we going to be have more data accuracy? Are we going to be more transparent? Right? Are the customers going to be able to have more flexibility in their ordering? Right? Those are some of the things we talked about. And then, especially now, um, we talk about interagency collaboration, um, the joint environment. And, and for us in DOD, it's the joint contestant environment. Um, so, how do we work with the services? How do we work with our NATO partners to, as we go through that digital business transformation, IT modernization? so that you have continuity of operations throughout. Um, so doing that, we've been trying to rely on creating data standards, right? You know, let's get to everybody calling it Apple and Apple, right? And not, it's a pair for you, it's a banana for someone else. Because, I mean, we have about 10 billion transactions that we manage for DOD throughout the year. And there's a lot of, um, data translation that happens because folks don't have data standards, right? What you call something in your system, I call something else. And so there's a cost to that and there's a risk to data integrity whenever you're doing that and folks are doing analytics. So we're focusing on standards, um, data governance. How are you tagging your data? You know, can I see it? Creating APIs so that it's easier to share that information as previously. Um, and then making sure that we're thinking about data analytics and cybersecurity at the front of that modernization effort and not doing it as a result of, you know, an adversary coming in and, and, and attacking it. So for us, that, that transformation and, and focus on data analytics from a logistics perspective, our information moves first. I can't deliver a part. I can't get something to the war fighter without having that information and that data. So I have to protect it, understand it, and know when I want to utilize it up front before you start any out to monetization effort. That's great. Do you have comments on that? I'll be real brief. Uh, okay. HHS and FDA have a very robust uh, IT modernization efforts. I'm not involved with the internal activities. I'm more focused on the external. I want to just make an academic comment kind of um, dilating on what Stephen Wong said. Uh, uh, going as far back as the 70s, academic literature, uh, Nobel Prize winner Herbert Simon, 1970, talked about um, the limitations or the, the bounded rationality of government and big uh, industry, actually, both. He saw them uh, having the same set of problems uh, that um, he, he uh, identified as single loop and double loop learning organizations learn in particular ways and the single loop is what predominates it is what they evaluate their uh their implementation but they don't evaluate the strategy right. that's the double loop right. you know they don't question those that's so this is a that Stephen is absolutely right and this is something that uh uh it's a difficult problem for all big companies and and uh and government and i know that in your presentation, we also talked about data standardization. So maybe did you want to touch base on that? I know Daryl talked about it. I think that that's a, a problem everywhere, right? This is not a government specific problem, but maybe can you address specifically, you know, what you've seen data irregularities, not standardized data and how FDA is going about addressing? Uh, gee. <laughs> so I think a lot about this about standard issues. Uh, standards need need efforts, but you know, 
again, my perspective on sol solving problems, uh, clinical societies go out there and there's lots of standards, you know, and the issue is harmonization and implementation. The problem is, is that what, even when that work's done, implementing them, the barriers to implementation are substantial. I mentioned that earlier, that uh, uh, that the governance issues. It's not even the standards for, in healthcare anyway. I think in some areas maybe there aren't mature standards, but we have we have pretty mature standards uh, that overlap and compete, and they need to be applied. Is is the big issue, and uh, the application has to do with governance. All right, I think we've heard some data governance. Yes. All right, I'm going to open it up now to questions. Okay. Yeah, you, okay. Or, or, you want yeah, to pass that? Okay. Uh, I'll try to keep whatever I have separate. <laughs> but there was somebody else who. That's okay, we'll go here. Yeah. All right. Hi, uh, good morning. Uh, myself, Pash Energy, and this is a question for Dr. Uh, Mr. Roberts. Um, we are aware that the DLA has a lot, lot of logistics data, items, inventories of equipment that's being used across the entire you know, uh, DOD and, and the federal civilian agencies as well. Um, some of this data, a lot of this data is being shared to you know, uh, platforms like Advana or Vantage or, or you know, so many other others. Um, speaking to a number of army uh, components who actually consume this data, We've learned there are quite a few, uh, I would say, known and unknown quality issues. Um, you know, and, and it's, it's data quality is always a problem. And you mentioned standardization, a lot of work has been going on. Has DNA taken on any efforts to work on the standardization and the quality of the quality of the data before it's actually shared with, with your external partners? Yeah, we, we are. Um, I, I think the thing that happened with Nirvana and, and all the data sharing, right? If you're really doing your data journey the correct way, you don't say, hey, send me all your data before asking whether or not I've cleansed my data. <laughs> um, but there was a mandate to send your data. Um, so we knew that initial batch of data we were sending, we hadn't done a data cleansing ourselves, right? We're still analyzing the data within our data warehouse because uh, we had only stood it up about four or five years prior to. Um, so we're still doing that. Um, Baltus about the you know the validation, the accuracy, the integrity of the data. We're doing that. Um, I think we're trying to prioritize it. So we're trying to work with the Joint Chiefs Office to say, hey, what's the priority for the department? Right. As a service provider, everybody wants our data, but I have petabytes of data. Right. It's not going to be something I'm going to do in the next year or two years. Right. This is going to be a journey. You know, whoever comes after me may still be cleaning data. Okay. Um, and so we're trying to prioritize that based on mission need and say, well, what do we need to focus on? But then also with the services, right, it's looking at their data to make sure they understand it too. I think taking someone's raw data without understanding the context behind it is very dangerous. And that's what we were asked to do initially. So what we're trying to work on is, hey, here's how you need to consume our data so you can understand what it means as opposed to giving the raw data and then saying, well, is this right or is this not right? Well, thank you so much. Uh, expanding on that, um, you know, we have looked at Army, uh, you know, components that are actually trying to, or we are proposing to them to leverage AI and ML to detect those quality, the quality issues, and then, you know, provide the feedback back to DLA or other sources. Um, would DLA consider something like that? We are. We're looking at using AI for the techno anomalies, but also um, data protection itself, 
right? There's the the zero trust model. If you if you're not familiar with it within the department, it's hey, don't trust anybody, internal, external. Um, you know, make sure you validate them. Um, so we want to use a similar type concept when we talk about the data accuracy, the data integrity, um, and the security of it. So how do you use AI in those type of use cases? I think is something um, I know we're looking at in the department. I know the office of CDAO is looking at it as well. Um, but I think the problem we have, and you mentioned it earlier, you know, we love to be able to get chat GPT and things of that in the government. Um, so we'll get there, but I think that's the limiting factor is the process it takes for us to get a technology approved. Um, one of the things we've done at PLA is we've created what we call a safe sandbox where folks can come in. We've applied all the DLD stigs and things of that nature. Um, cause Fed ramp certification is good, but within the department, um, we require a little higher level of, of cybersecurity. Um, and so we stood up an environment where folks can come in test your software against it and understand what you need to do to get approved to be on a DOD network. So we're trying, we're going to have a hackathon uh, in January, a generative AI hackathon where we're going to invite industry to come in. We'll give you some use cases from DLA and give it your best shot. That's great. Thank you so much. I might have another question. Great question back here. So this one is, is more on my manager side and um, you know, we've been talking about the emerging technologies, uh, but we should also be mindful of all these systems that legacy systems that have existed uh, for decades and have technical debt. Um, a lot of data. Um, in order to apply modern technologies, um, you know, have a better user experience and things like that, we probably need a good visibility into our portfolios. Um, what are the different efforts we're doing? And I know we've been talking standards and things like that, but unless we have visibility of uh, the portfolio, um, you know, we, we, we're not going to be very successful in, in modernizing. Uh, what each one of you are doing in your agencies um, operationally to get that visibility into the portfolios so we can properly and swiftly control it. And I, I know their agile practices simply means that, you know, we're not mainly doing greenfield projects, maybe brownfield projects where we want to have visibility and apply apply modern technology for a better user experience. Like I said, <laughs> I always go back to money. Yeah, like I said, um, so there, I mean, obviously we have projects, you know, we have tons of reports internal that have to stay internal. And obviously there's some that are external, but there's still a lot that are still in paper form. We're just going back to scanning those and then saying, can we, can we learn something? Because we don't want to lose the learnings of the past, right? We don't need to re be repeating, spending money with that. So that's part of the effort is we're scanning all these old documents. And then how do we make these available internally? that we can learn. But then there's all these questions like, you know, do I really want to feed this to an LLM? <laughs> you know, right. or, or how much, you know, or does it doesn't have to be the air gap version or, or whatever. What can release? Because again, we work in the unclassified space. Most everything we do has to be out there. All right. So we have we have to share it. So it's 
I, I, this is back to this is a story from ExxonMobil. So I was doing a a study, uh, and they were concerned that whatever I was putting in my oil might screw up the refinery. Fair question, right? So let's test it. So we tested it, and we got a result, and it was a positive result. And then they told me, "Okay, don't say anything." And I go, "What do you mean? This is a good thing. We're supposed to be, should be sharing this." Says, "No, because if we release that, then somebody's going to go. Why did you do that?" Why did you test that? Is that something we're supposed to be testing? It's like, you know, it, it, this had to come from the marketing, which is back to, let me get back to the, the whole philosophical question, what is truth? A, a lot of these documents, whether we put out a lot, we start spouting terms like fairness and equity and stuff like that. But without clear, measurable metrics to do this that we all agree on, and plus the terms that we've talked about, you know, when I say risk in the industry, that means something. When I came to government, I said risk, it had a completely different meaning. And I said, you guys have never done a risk assessment before? <laughs> you know, they had no clue. <laughs> so what, what do you mean? You know, so again, it's, it's just, just back to, are we even talking the same language? You know, because we got to do that first. And then, like you say, we have to create what potentially is a value, the limited resources, what could potentially be a value, what can we serve that back up to the public where possible, or if it has to stay internal, you know. Uh, or what it is, we don't have visibility to that. And a lot of that is a philosophical exercise. It's not about technology. It's not, about, I mean, yes, there's there's definite technical requirements. It's just back to philosophy. What is truth? If I have this measurement, how do I know it's good? We can't, we can't even just, you know, say that. A lot of that has to do with the relationships with other data. You know, like if I have this temperature measurement from the sensor, I can know if it's good, if it matches models that I have and other data that are surrounding it. Because if it's not consistent, I can say that thing is out of calibration. But I can't say that just by looking at that individual thing. So that, that just in a little microcosm is just kind of a real sliver of the data, governance data, validation data, truthing that we have to do. It's not cheap. <laughs> it's not cheap. Yeah, and, and, and you have to start with the process. You have to start with the governance. Um, and so what we did, we, we mapped out all our business processes from our process owners and we put that in a database and we looked, when I came on board, we had about 250 applications at BLA. Um, and we mapped that across and we looked at the system and said, Hey, where are these business processes existing in multiple applications? And we found a lot of duplicity, not because it was necessary, but someone had money, they could build a system and they did. And once it's built, you're not going to pry it from their dead cold hands. Um, and so we put out an edict and I say, Hey, I'm the final decision authority. I own the money. And today we're down to about 97. Right. And so I call those everyone's firstborn. Right. Now I'm at the point where it's an emotional tie to get that system away from them to do the right thing so that you can modernize. Um, and then from a government perspective too, we have to use those systems that we're always going to have some type of government code, right? It's just from, because of Congress and laws and things of that nature, we're going to be required to do something that industry is not to be accountable to the taxpayer, but put that on a platform that you can manage. So from a technology perspective, you can always improve and enhance. Um, and then make sure you understand the technology roadmap for what you've invested in. Our SAP RP, we're going through. I, I inherited 20 years of technical debt at BLA. Two thirds of our ERP was customized. We asked SAP to come in, help us look at it. 
we can't help you. That's no longer our code. You've customized the code so much it's not SAP standard code. Um, so we have to fight from doing that. You have to clean that up. Um, and then I'll never get rid of customization, but I have to actively manage and govern that customization from a business process perspective related to the technology program. All right. Well, this has been a wonderful discussion and we're just about at time. So before we wrap up, I will let each of you just share final parting words, uh, you know, on this topic or on the discussion today. So Craig, we'll start with you and Mark right in. I want to thank you all. Uh, thank the organizers. And uh, I look forward to uh, continuing this conversation. Thank you. No, thank you for having me. Um, it's good to talk about IT technology and not have people yelling at you for why it doesn't work. <laughs> um, so enjoy the exchange. Um, this is Seamless Plug Marketing. Um, so we are hiring at DLA. Um, we're, we're always looking for new IT specialists. We're looking for folks with program analytics, things of that nature. I am proof that you don't have to grow up in IT to be successful in IT. Um, but we, we really do want to recruit new talent um, in the agency because the department and the federal government as a whole, there's some, this is the age of innovation, right? So within a department, we call this the crucial decade, right? If we don't do certain things within the next 10 years with the threats that you're seeing out in the world today, will the U.S. still be the dominant power and be able to do what we need to do uh, when we need to do it, right? And so our motto at DLA is on America's worst day, we have to be at our best. Um, and we have the talent here, right? We just need to actively recruit it, make sure people don't understand who we are. So. Um, any help, any ideas you have, anyone that you want to send our way, um, we are actively hiring um, at DLA for, for new talent. Well, as long as we're doing recruiting. <laughs> no, absolutely. Um, we need people with initiative in the government. And so once you've done your industry stint, your major money or whatever the heck, you, you want to do something interesting and do some public service. Yeah, come our way. And I don't mean DOE necessarily. I'm talking about government, okay? Because we need good people. We need people that think outside the box. Uh, we need people that, are, you know, take some initiative. We need those. Please consider federal service. All right. Well, I think that's a great way to end it. So thank you so much to everyone on the panel today. To view this episode's show notes, find additional episodes, subscribe to this podcast, and join the fastest growing community of government innovators. Go to govfuture.com slash podcast. This sound recording and its contents are copyright GovFuture, all rights reserved. Music by Kevin McLeod. Thanks for listening to the GovFuture podcast and catch you at the next episode.